Centralia. Nearly everyone who's into weird history has heard of it, but how much do you really know? I've scoured the web to share with you the most comprehensive timeline I could create, sprinkled with the strangest bits of oddities and trivia I could find. Buckle up, dear travelers. Today we take on the town that inspired Silent Hill. Well, kind of. Next stop, Centralia, Pennsylvania. Now, as I mentioned, Centralia is a very popular topic. If you Google this town, you will find all kinds of documentaries and articles and websites, discussion boards. It is definitely a high interest topic. So it's going to be probably a long episode, but I've really tried to include answers to questions that I've come across myself as I research this topic. So we'll start with the location. Centralia, Pennsylvania is located in an area of 154 acres in the Bloomsburg-Berwick metro area of Pennsylvania. It was sold by local native tribes to colonists in 1749. And soon after, in 1770, construction of Reading Road began. This road would later become Route 61, and Route 61 goes on to be one of Centralia's more famous landmarks. You may have heard of it referenced as Graffiti Road. The area was briefly owned by a Revolutionary War hero by the name of Robert Morris from 1793 to 1798. Now, I found this really interesting because this war hero, he doesn't own it for more than five years, which... I find questionable, especially when you realize that um, he lost it due to bankruptcy. So I've got some questions as far as my country and our history of taking care of vets, but I'll let that go for now. Following the ownership by Robert Morris, it was purchased by French sea captain Stephen Gerard for $30,000. He was the first one to notice anthracite coal below the region. And if you know nothing about Centralia, Pennsylvania, know this. It is a region heavy in anthracite coal. Anthracite coal is a particularly desirable type of coal because it's deemed a more pure form of the substance. Interestingly, I found no record of him trying to access this coal. So maybe he was more of an investor than a miner. At any rate, he doesn't ever try to get it or allow mining on the site while he owns it. Rather, he just kind of holds on to the land until he sells it. That brings us to the naming of the town. Nearly 100 years after the area was sold to colonists, the town received its first American name. It was known as Bull's Head. It was named after a tavern opened by a man called Jonathan Faust, and it was really the first business established in the region. 100 years seems to be a recurring theme here. At this point, the area really moves toward the mine town it's known for being when much of the land in the area is purchased by Locust Mountain Coal and Iron Company in 1842. So look out for this hundred years because as I've researched the history of this town, it seems like we get a major event roughly every 100 years and I'll keep pointing it out to you. 
So at this point, the area has been sold to Locust Mountain Coal and Iron Company, and we're in 1842. One year before purchasing the land, Locust Mountain Coal and Iron sent a man by the name of Alexander Ray to the area to determine how to approach the area and begin developing a town to support the miners. Mines in that time in history often had communities of people that were basically made of the miners and their families that kind of popped up around the mine. People didn't have the means to commute, so they really needed to live as close as possible. As the first to officially put forth a plan for the development of the area, Alexander Ray was able to claim foundership and rename the town. So he is known as the founder of Centralia. Fun fact, it was originally called Centerville, but the name was already taken by another town in Pennsylvania, so he changed it to Centralia. It's here that we meet our first interesting occurrence with the fate of the town's founder. Perhaps a sign of things to come? In October of 1868, some 40 years after establishing the area, Ray was killed in his buggy. This is a direct quote. Killed in his buggy by the Molly Maguires. Now, I don't know what a buggy is. I'm guessing it's similar to a carriage. Ha ha ha. Something pulled by a horse, I would guess. Anywho, the town's fate would eventually mimic that of its proposed founder. Let's go to the opening of the mines. So, as I mentioned, when Ray enters the area and Locust Mountain Coal and Iron Company purchase the land, that's when we're really moving towards the mine town that Centralia is known for being. So a railroad to support mining efforts was built in 1854 and later joined by another rail connecting the town to nearby areas. So at this point, Centralia is growing. The first two mines in Centralia opened in 1856 and by 1863, the town would have more than five operational mines. I don't know if this is a lot for a region that size, but it kind of seems like it to me. The town grew steadily throughout the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, and it reached its maximum population of 2,761 residents in 1890. At this point in Centralia's history, the town now boasts seven churches, five hotels, 27 saloons, two theaters, one bank, one post office, and 14 general and or grocery stores. So quite a thriving metropolis we have here. Now keep the churches in mind because one of my favorite little finds about researching Centralia is the curse of Father McDermott. And I have to tell you, I have spent so many sleepless nights looking into odd facts about Centralia. And this was one that I had never come across before. So I'm excited to share it with you. But before I do, we need to understand who were the Molly Maguires. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because I just said it a moment ago when I talked about the death of the town's founder, Alexander Ray. Remember, he was killed in his buggy by Molly Maguires. Uh, legend says he was returning to Centralia from a neighboring town. So let me tell you a little bit more about the population of Centralia in order to understand who the Molly Maguires were. 
So as you might guess, the town was made up of mostly employees of the early mine companies, their families, and in time, their descendants. Many of the early miners who populated the area were Irish immigrants. This brings us to the activity of the Molly Maguires in the area. You might know that the Molly Maguires were a group of freedom fighters originating in Ireland. Irish immigrants who moved to America for better working conditions were surprised to find conditions weren't really any better and sometimes worse than their homeland. So imagine uprooting your entire life for a fresh start. You've probably been told that you're going to have great opportunities when you get there. And then when you get there, you're just met with total disillusionment. Everything you thought was going to happen isn't happening. And now add to that, sometimes you've got mouths to feed. I don't know, but for some reason, this kind of like feels like the, the myth of going to college to be successful. I don't know why that's popping into my head, but it just seems like... Um, these Irish citizens were sold a bunch of dreams and then when they got here some of that stuff might have been a little embellished right and so when they get here and they find out that these conditions are not any better I mean they're arriving to those signs that you always see pictures of boasting Irish need not apply this is the time that we're in it's believed that the Molly Maguires emerged in response to injustices placed upon Irish miners by wealthy mining companies. Oh my God, does history repeat itself? The Molly Maguires were active in Pennsylvania until 1877 when many of them were hanged and their subsequent activity was greatly reduced. If you are interested in this, do a Google and actually there's a link in my sources that really goes in depth on the Molly Maguires. I don't think their presence should be forgotten to history because much of what they were fighting for either led to benefits that we have today or are things that we are still fighting for. So I wanted to make sure I gave them a bit of a spotlight here because the Molly Maguires were active in Centralia and the miners in that region, many of them were Irish immigrants or of Irish descent. Um, and I just think that it's really important. Also, you know, the town founder met his fate at the hands of the Molly Maguires. Given this, it almost makes sense that they went after the company man who founded the town. What perhaps makes less sense is their decision to target Father McDermott. So let me tell you a little bit about Father McDermott in order to set the scene. Father Daniel Ignatius McDermott was the priest at the local Roman Catholic Church in Centralia. He was only 25 when he took over the newly established parish and celebrated his first few masses in schoolhouses while parishioners waited for the church to be built. In 1869, the father was assaulted by three members of the Molly Maguires. I haven't found a reason why. I don't know if maybe he was out there supporting the mine companies and that angered the Molly Maguires. Or maybe the Molly Maguires were not fans of this particular church because Centralia did have, as I said, seven churches. So perhaps there were some divides there. I couldn't find a reason why he was targeted, but according to one source I found, legend says that he rang the church bells to wake the entire town after this assault, and he cursed the town of Centralia. He said that Centralia would cease to exist and only the church would remain.
So now that I've shared that interesting tidbit with you, let's continue on our history of Centralia. Things are moving smoothly along for the town until we reach the stock market crash of 1929. Remember my warning of every hundred years? We're getting close to the mark. With the beginning of the Great Depression came the closing of five mines in the Centralia area. The pinch was felt by families all over the region. Five mines. That is a lot of employees, a lot of families affected. So this leads to an increase in bootleg mining, which is the first hint we get at the fate that awaits this town. So let me tell you a little bit about bootleg mining in the region. Um, If you know the phrase bootleg, you probably know what this is, right? To bootleg something is to do it without permission. So even though they close these five mines, these miners still have themselves and potentially others to look after. And so they're still trying to get this coal because it's still valuable. They can still sell it somewhere, even if the mine isn't paying them for it. So these miners... They do what they have to do. Um, I'm not I'm not here to cast judgment on anybody. Let me tell you one way that they did this. It was called pillar robbing. And what they did was extract coal from support pillars that had been left in place in these abandoned mines. Extracting the coal from support pillars makes them more fragile and can lead to collapse of those portions of the mine. This is important because later it will make efforts at controlling the fire, another spoiler, even more difficult. The mining industry in Centralia never fully recovers from this, and by the 1950s, the Centralia Council obtains the rights to all remaining anthracite coal below the town. And look at that. Hasn't it been about 100 years? And with that, we've reached the beginning of the end. The fire that doomed the town. 1962 is when the fire begins. The exact date is debated, but what can be said is that nearly 100 years after mines in Centralia opened, and long after many of those companies had withdrawn from the region, a fire broke out in a landfill. This fire would essentially be the death sentence of Centralia, though this wasn't at all the thought at the time. Most historians believe the fire began in 1962. There are three major theories on how it started, and you'll see by the time I get to the third one of these why I say most historians. So let me give you those three major theories. Here's the first one. Every year before Memorial Day, the town would burn the landfills. Okay, you're going to burn the landfills. Here's something you have to know about these landfills. They were using abandoned strip mines. So in particular, they had just opened a new landfill kind of close to one of the churches in the region. And it was a 50 foot wide strip mine that was turned into a landfill just the year before. Landfills and disused mines were known to be a fire hazard, so inspectors required the pit be filled or coated with a non-combustible material before use to seal any holes that might lead to connecting mines below. 
it's unknown if this was ever completed, but what we do know is that setting the dump on fire was purposefully left out of the council meeting minutes, likely because it was heckin' illegal. They were not supposed to be setting this strip mine on fire unless they were 100% sure. Well, no, I'm sorry. I'm double checking my notes. They weren't supposed to do it at all. This was not an approved manner of managing garbage and fumes and whatnot. So far, I've found no confirmed reason, but they seem to have burned the pits before with no issues. It reminds me of that phrase, this is how we've always done it. Not always the best way to do things, friends. Anywho, on May 27th, 1962, volunteer firefighters at the instruction of the Centralia Council, even though they were careful not to specifically put it in the notes, they set the landfill alight. But this time the fire wasn't fully extinguished and it made its way through an opening to the abandoned mines. So this is the first theory. Remember I said there are three. Let me give you the second. The second theory is that the fire was started on May 26th, one day before the volunteer firefighters arrived, when a trash hauler dumped hot ashes or maybe coal from coal burners into the pit. Now, obviously, we should not be throwing hot things into a landfill. As I mentioned before, the state of Pennsylvania already knew that landfills had combustion issues because you've got layers and layers of stuff in hot conditions. Have you ever seen those YouTube videos on how hay can spontaneously combust? This is what that made me think of. If you haven't seen those videos, it's very, very fascinating, especially for us science nerds. So that is the second theory, that a trash hauler dumped hot ashes or coal into the pit. That brings us to the third theory, and the reason that I said most historians believe that the fire began in 1962. Because the third theory is that the fire was actually the continuation of the 1932 Bast Colliery Fire. This was a fire that had started from an explosion in the mines 30 years beforehand. And the theory is that this fire was never put out. It continued to burn until it reached the landfill and kicked off the events that would doom the city. Early efforts to put out the fire mostly consisted of pouring water on the burning pit. After a few months, they brought out machinery to help access the layers of garbage burning underneath. It's around this time that they found a 15-foot-wide hole in the north end of the pit, which had been concealed by garbage at the time of the pit treatment. Remember, I said that they were supposed to coat this landfill with some sort of clay or non-combustible substance. Well, it looks like early efforts had been made, but this 15-foot wide hole never received any non-combustible material. It's now theorized that this hole is what gave the fire access to the sprawling underground mines below. It's important to note here at this point that residents are still being told to dump their trash here. I have no idea why, but even after they know there's a fire, I guess they are just so confident in their ability to manage this that they're like, yeah, keep taking your trash over there. It's not a problem. Everything is fine. Nothing to see here. 
Did the town implement swift action to confront this issue? I wish I could say that they had, but if they had, perhaps they wouldn't be the subject of this episode. Many of the reports I read stated that the citizens of Centralia fell into roughly five different camps of opinion. With so many differing views, the town struggled to take decisive action. Efforts that were enacted tended to be one step behind in addressing the size of the fire. So what did they try? Early attempts included efforts to put the fire out with water and later to seal the fire's access to oxygen. Vents in the unstable ground below the city, including those causing an eerie gas to rise from the cemetery at hmm, St. Ignatius Church, made this effort ineffective. So they're trying to stop oxygen from getting to the fire, but all these vents keep opening up that steam is escaping from. So as soon as they can seal these areas, another one is opening. Now, you notice I paused on St. Ignatius. Is that name a little familiar, travelers? This is the church that Father McDermott once headed. Now we see eerie smoke lifting from the ground near the church. It just sounds so creepy to me. There were three key efforts within that first year. The first thing they tried was to pay a contractor by the name of Birdie $20,000, that's $179,000 in 2021, to excavate the fire. In excavating, though, he kept exposing the fire to more oxygen. So he's trying to dig the fire out, but the more digging he does, the more oxygen the fire is fed, and it's a destructive cycle. He manages to excavate 58,580 cubic yards, that's 44,790 meters cubed, before running out of money on October 29, 1962. Were the parents worried about the fire that Halloween as their children went trick-or-treating? Because this first effort, it didn't work. The second attempt was made by a company called K&H Excavating, and they were paid $28,400. That's $254,000 in 2021 currency. They attempted to fill the mines with a rock water slurry ahead of the fire. So the idea here is to stop the fire from spreading. Long story short, this doesn't work either. The third project is kind of a grab bag of efforts and all of them are abandoned. They thought of entrenching the fire and then backfilling the trench. Um, then they had a similar idea, just using a smaller trench. And then the last thing that came up was a total and concerted flushing project. That's a direct quote because I'm not sure how that's different from the rock water slurry. But either way, none of these ever really go far. Other efforts attempted, including smothering the fire using a clay blanket. I'm not sure how this works, but it was attempted. Um, direct excavation, isolation trench excavation, flushing, that's filling of the deep mine workings with non-combustible materials like sand or finely crushed rock, and surface sealing with clay-like materials. Um, but none of these work. And we start to see the first real unignorable signs of trouble in 1979. Over 10 years later, we're inching towards that 100-year mark. So we notice there's a problem when Major John Coddington, <laughs> that's a typo, not Major John Coddington, 
Mayor John Coddington. He also owns a gas station. And so one day he's using a dipstick to measure the amount of gasoline in the underground tank that he has at this gas station. And when he pulls this thermometer out, he's like, hold on a second. This is way too hot. The temperature that he reads on this thermometer is 172 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 77.8 degrees Celsius. That's like really, really hot. And he's testing a gas tank. I don't know, friends. It seems dangerous to me. I'll note here that the population at this time when this becomes known for Centralia is 1,200 people. So this is when we see our first sign of trouble, but it's not necessarily, um, I won't say that the town ignores it, but it isn't the event that kicks off a major and swift reaction. I'm chuckling to myself because is there a swift reaction? I'll let you decide for yourself. But what does become a big deal and really draws attention to what's going on in Centralia occurs on Valentine's Day, 1981. Now, if you've kept up with my timeline, and it is a long and complex timeline, this fire started in 1962. It doesn't stop being kind of brushed under the rug, in my personal opinion, until Valentine's Day 1981. What happens on this fateful day? Well, on this day, Centralia is being visited by a Pennsylvania state representative and the current Pennsylvania state governor. His name is a little complicated for me, but I'm going to try it. It's T-O-R-N-B-U-R-G-H. Tornbur? Tornbur? I tried. Anywho, these two representatives are visiting the city, and on this fateful day, a sinkhole opened up and swallowed a 12-year-old boy. Now, this is a direct consequence of this fire raging in these abandoned mines below the town. The sinkhole was reportedly four feet, that's 1.2 meters wide, and 150 feet, that's 46 meters deep. Oh my gosh, can you imagine being 12 years old? The ground opens up beneath you, and hello, it's hot. Remember, we got 172 degrees Fahrenheit when the mayor checked his gas tank. It's hot, and this hole opens up beneath him. The boy managed to grab onto a tree limb as he fell and thankfully was saved by his 14-year-old cousin. I mean, seriously, major props to the both of these two for the trauma alone, but 14 years old, knowing that if you don't have the strength to pull this boy out, you might never see your cousin again? That's too much for an adult, let alone a child. Anyway, the town cannot ignore this event, especially with two politicians visiting the area. Two children's lives are endangered when the higher-ups are in town. Now we have their attention. So, the town tries from 1962 to roughly that fateful Valentine's Day in 1981 to get this under control on their own. Previously in this podcast, I mentioned that they didn't... What was it that I said? I want to get this note right. Did the town implement swift action? I wish they could say that they did. The reason that I said that is because they have those five groups that are all differing. 
kind of reminds me of present day America because some people were very firm in their belief that there was no fire. Even though they could see these vents and the smoke rising near the cemetery of St. Ignatius Church and other places, they held firm that this was not real. There was no fire. So that was one of the five, right? And then you had others who said... There's a fire, but it's not a big deal. Like, we get mine fires all the time. Landfills catch on fire. This is completely manageable. People are blowing it out of proportion. So it's not that Centralia did nothing in those 20 years. But it is that the city was so divided that action was delayed. That much is definitely true. Swift action, I cannot say, was taken. In that 20 years, some action was taken. But as I said before, the fire just always seemed to be a step or two ahead of them. That brings us back to 1981 when the sinkhole opens up while the politicians are in town. And it can no longer be ignored by people outside of Centralia or even really by those residents who didn't believe in it. Along with unstable ground, like what we saw occur with the sinkhole, other concerns included toxic fumes emanating from these cracks and vents that continued to show up throughout the town. So over the next 20 some odd years from 1981 on, Centralia would decline and dwindle to merely a memory. I think it's sad when we lose a city because so much life and energy is poured into a geographic location just to be abandoned. In honor of the celebrations, tragedies, and lives lived in that now non-existent town, I present to you as best I could the timeline of the fall of Centralia. In 1983, the U.S. Congress allocated $42 million to help residents relocate away from Centralia. 1,000 people leave and 500 buildings are demolished. In 1990, 100 years, ding, 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 after the town's maximum population, the city reported a population of only 63 people. In 1992, all real estate in the area was seized by the state of Pennsylvania through eminent domain. Now, some residents were not happy about this. Remember, we said there was a population of 63 people just two years previously. Not everyone wanted to go. Legal attempts are made at halting this, but they fail. The path that Route 61 used to take ends up being abandoned because these vents keep opening up. Now, for a while, they keep repaving the road and adding supports and keeping the path going so it would only be closed for like a time while they worked on it and they have like this temporary path. But by 1993, they decide that this temporary path will be the new permanent path for Route 61, which leads us to the establishment of Graffiti Road. Graffiti Road is what becomes of this abandoned section of Route 61. And it's called that because lots of explorers would come out to the area to see this ghost town and they started spray painting and tagging the road. So it became kind of an artistic expression. In 2002, Centralia lost its zip code. F in the chat to pay your respects, travelers. 17927 is no more. 
In 2006, only 16 homes remained. As people leave, buildings are being demolished due to unstable ground and because of the risk of carbon dioxide and other dangerous gases. The thought here is if we leave these buildings up, people will come to explore. And honestly, we probably would. We're a bunch of curious people. Uh, I'm speaking for myself here. If it was still there, I probably would try to go see it. I know me. So it's, it's, I hate it. I hate that they tore these buildings down because I want to see them, but I, I totally get it. In 2009, a formal eviction of remaining residents begins. Now imagine investing in a future in a town that disappears before your very eyes. 2009, the fire started in 1962. So you're talking what, like 45-ish years? If you were in your 20s when you started building your life in Centralia, you're now in your 60s. And and everything that you worked for is just falling apart. It just is so tragic to me. Remember, at this point, Centralia had existed in some form for about 200 years. I mean, who could have predicted this? By 2013, 20 years after allocation of government funds to redistribute residents, the decision is made to allow any remaining residents to stay in their homes until death, at which point the state will take over the property. So that's interesting. There seems to have been a change of heart between 2009 and 2013 about what to do with these remaining residents. Because remember, in 2009, we start formal evictions, but just four years later, they kind of change paths and decide, no, you can stay until you are no more, and then the state will take over. By 2017, the census reported five people living in Centralia, and by 2020, that number would be zero. And so ends the town of Centralia, Pennsylvania. So let's talk about present day. The fire is still burning in the abandoned mines below the town, and it's expected to do so for another 250 years. It is monitored on the surface monthly, and subsurface investigations are done yearly by the state of Pennsylvania. Could the fire be put out today? This was a question on a Q&A that the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection put out, and I'll quote them in their answer. Most experts believe that with a very large and very expensive effort, the Centralia mine fire could be excavated or otherwise extinguished. However, the cost for this type of project is currently beyond the capacity of Pennsylvania's AML program to address. So really, it comes down to money. Most sources I found indicated that with decisive action and dedicated funds earlier in the occurrence, the town could have been saved. Instead... The arguing and the hesitancy to really put money behind this led an entire town to die through their inaction. If I didn't mention it before, when I talked about those first concentrated three efforts, every time they made an effort, they went with the cheapest option. Now, I don't want to do the proverbial, you get what you pay for, but when you're going with the cheapest option, I think it just kind of sends a message that maybe this isn't our top priority. 
But it was expensive. Speaking of cost, to give an idea of what they were willing to spend, by 1983, the state of Pennsylvania had spent $7 million on fire control projects and attempts to relocate residents. And between 1983 and 2002, another $41.6 million would be spent on relocating residents. Dangers still present in Centralia include toxic fumes like carbon dioxide and unstable ground. Signs for these dangers are posted all over the place. If you decide that you want to go out there and explore, you're going to see these signs. And please, please, please be careful. Sinkholes still happen. Carbon dioxide is a major danger. So if you do decide to go, just please, please, please be careful. Use common sense. Be prepared. Tell people where you're going. Have a plan. Be safe. The detour path for State Route 61, as I mentioned, became the permanent path in 1993. The former roadway became a popular destination for explorers, thrill seekers, and graffiti artists, and photos abound on the internet of Graffiti Road. Sadly, as of 2020, the road has been covered with dirt by the private owner of the property, and I mean... Is it still there under the dirt? I don't know. Personally, I feel like there's something weird about taking a previously public road that then became an art structure and symbol of a lost town and purposefully covering it up. I mean, I guess if you own the private property, you don't want people on your land or maybe you don't want to be somehow liable, but I just, you know, I wish it could have been kept somehow, somehow preserved because it was pretty awesome to see. It's history, you know? And this brings us back to my question in our intro. Did this town inspire Silent Hill? Well, not really. It gave inspiration to the screenwriter of the 2006 movie, but not the original video game designer. And what of Father McDermott's curse? Well, the St. Ignatius Catholic Church did outlive many of its counterparts. It was closed in 1997 due to unstable ground and dangerous fumes, and while the building itself was demolished a few years later, the neighboring cemetery does remain. Rumor has it the church was the last one standing in Centralia proper, just as Father McDermott said it would be, but I wasn't able to find a truly reputable source confirming this claim. There is another church nearby that some Centralia residents attended when their home began closing, but it is not inside the city limits of Centralia. Still, it is Catholic. It's a Ukrainian Catholic church. Some people believe that perhaps Father McDermott was right after all. He just got the wrong Catholic church. There was a uh, suburb, if you will, of Centralia called Burnsville. It was a nearby town that was also vacated due to the mine fires. And there is nothing remaining of the town now except for a religious altar that was made from some bathtubs. It might seem a little quirky. But that's what we're all about. It travels by carriage. And um, it's a monument, you know? It, it helped remember this place. And I'm always in favor of that. I feel there's an innate sadness that comes with the end of something. And as these residents pass, so too does any working memory of what stood here before. So long live the Burnsville altar. One last fun fact before we close out the episode. 
It seems the residents of Centralia were so confident in the fate of their town circa 1966 that they buried a time capsule in the city. The time capsule was supposed to be opened 50 years later in 2016. However, it ended up being opened a bit earlier than that in 2014 instead. Why did they decide to open it earlier? Well, it seems some people were getting a little too curious, and after some attempts at theft had been made on the time capsule, surviving residents of Centralia decided that it was time to open it. Unfortunately, they forgot to weatherproof this time capsule when they buried it, and so upon opening, they found about two feet of water inside the capsule. The water ruined anything made of paper, but there were a few salvageable remains, including the helmet of a miner, which was signed by many of the miners from 1966. So that brings us to the end of this episode, friends. I was inspired to cover this town because I've heard it covered many times, but I never felt like I got the full story. It turns out that's likely because the full story is kind of a lot. I've probably missed a lot here myself, but I tried to present the life of this town as it happened, and I hope I did it justice. What about you, travelers? Have any of you ever visited Centralia? What was your experience? I do hope you'll share them with us. You've been listening to Travels by Carriage with Z Algar. If you liked today's episode, please remember to like and subscribe. Today's stop took us to revisit the once thriving town of Centralia. I hope you'll join us next time for another stop on our journey through the quirky and mysterious. Thanks for listening. Do you like uh, scary stuff? Yeah. Mm, mm, mm.